in my headspace, there was no, I wasn't planning on, like I had zero desire to stop using and just, I didn't think it was possible. And that's such a dangerous spot to be. Um, and if you're out there and, and, you know, if someone's listening to this and you are using and you think that that's the case, that's not the case. There's a way out if you want it. There's a lot of resources out there and there's a lot of people out there that can help you get to where you need to be. So um, I just I, I always call that out because it's such dangerous thinking because like when there's no hope, where do you go when there's no hope? Right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Henry's Uncle podcast. Today, we are speaking with Jordan Barnes, who suffered from alcoholism, drug addiction, and homelessness. Today, he is over 10 years sober and an award-winning, best-selling author. Take a listen to his incredible story. Well, hey, everyone. Uh, Really excited to have another uh, wonderful guest, Jordan Barnes. And I'm just going to tell you a little backstory how I found Jordan. I didn't know he's an author, a person in long-term recovery, but... It was just a week and a half ago when I was up in Central Oregon with my family and I was you know, stuck in bed with my three-year-old and I was going through my Kindle trying to find a book and your book popped up and I was like, you know, read the, uh, the d- details about it. I'm like, okay, it's, it's in Portland. So I got to read this. And yeah, I just, uh, I'm about 80% of the way through it right now. It's just wild. It's a brutally honest story about addiction and recovery and everything you've gone through and definitely hit home for me just because, you know, a lot of it took place in Portland so I could, you know, see and feel where you were at those times. And, but, uh, you know, Jordan, please, I'm sorry <laughs> for the long intro there, but please go ahead and introduce yourself. No, that was great. Yeah. Um, you, you pretty much did it all for all for me. My, my name is, my name is Jordan Barnes. I am a grateful alcoholic addict in recovery. I am an author and I just made 10 years clean and sober last year. So, so doing really well. I live in Hawaii now. I did spend, I call it the supposed best years of your life in Portland. That was my college years. So that's my connection to Portland. And I ended up going up there, getting in quite a bit of trouble. And through a roundabout way, ended up back here in Hawaii. And I went to a two-year long-term inpatient treatment program. And so when I got out in my life, you know, I was doing good for a few years. I decided to, I wanted to write a book. I wanted to share. I wanted to be in service. And I started off with basically like a lessons learned in recovery type thing that quickly evolved into a memoir. And that was a two-year process. I have no background in writing I tell people I failed English in high school because I was, my mind was elsewhere. And I just, I just, but I wanted to, I wanted to share my story. And I thought that I had a lot of people that helped me and telling the story of the people that helped me was really important to me because I wanted people to learn how important a strong support group is for someone like me going through some of the stuff that I went through. And that book changed my life. One Hit Away, A Memoir of Recovery uh, is self-published and I put it out. I didn't know what to expect. And it was just really well received. And it's kind of brought me out of my introverted shell. It's got me talking to people like you. It's got me going out there and being more of an advocate. Just last week, I was actually in a college class with uh, Western Virginia U- University. And they they picked up my book as part of their addiction studies curriculum. And then they called me in to talk to the students. And it was so it was, it's just amazing. I mean, like having the connection with books to reach people and, and, sh- and talk about something that's really important to me that, that means a lot and kind of defines who I am is it's really a cool, it's really a cool thing to, to be involved in. And I really love it. It's, it's definitely something that is, um, I feel like it's really powerful. It's a powerful tool. It's something that's, it's great. 
And it's great to connect with people because people from all over can pick up a book and read a story. You know, again, I, I didn't know what to expect. I, you know, ever since my, my brother passed in uh, just a little over three years ago, December, 2018, I, you know, you go back to my, uh, our, our guest room and there's, I don't know, I mean, 30, it seems probably like 30 books of just, you know, addiction recovery. And, you know, I had no idea what to expect from your book. And, and ever since my brother passed, you know, it's, it's all I've been reading. It seems like is, is really nonfiction about addiction recovery, you know, the policies, everything. Cause I, again, I, I held that stigma towards people who, who were going through it. You know, I'm sure if, you know, if we go back 10, 15 years ago and I saw you on the streets, I probably would have had that stigma, right? You know, that's a person who, cho- you know, chose to be where he's at, et cetera, so on. And so it's definitely opened my eyes, um, has helped me educate myself and hopefully others. And like yourself, I'm a huge introvert. And so it's, it's, uh, this has got me, you know, just talking to so many different people of different backgrounds and it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. And so that's really cool. And, and, and again, I'll probably say it, you know, hundreds of times on this podcast, how do you recommend, um, you know, picking up your book, reading it? Cause you know, it's, uh, not only is it, um, you know, wild story it's, but it's very raw and you can really sense, you know, every step of the way from using down at PSU, going to Hooper, all that stuff. You know, for me, it's just like the recovery process you're in right now is, is wild, which we'll get to. So, you know, before all this, I kind of want to go back into your childhood, you know, so was your childhood just like a pretty typical upbringing? You know, was there any trauma, things like that? So no trauma that I can actively speak on, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't trauma at some point. I come from uh, a great family with wonderful parents. Um, I think that's pretty obvious to anyone that reads my story. And my book doesn't do justice to how amazing they are. I'm the youngest of three boys. And we really had, you know, a strong a strong family unit or Ohana unit. And I had my dad's retired naval intelligence. They moved, they, we all moved from Russia to Hawaii in 87. And my parents started a small business. The only thing I can think of when I, when I look back at my childhood was that Hawaii, we were just talking about this earlier, but Hawaii is expensive and it's hard to make it. And they put all three of us kids through private school and, and the business was such a gift but the business also, you know, took a lot. It took a lot of time and energy. And I can relate with this with writing because I write all the time. I write on weekends. I mean, they say when you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. <clears throat> so I can relate with my dad how hard he was working because I have a kid. I've got one on the way and I want to give him the world. I want to give him the best. But I would say that, like, I feel that, you know, in my formative years, I'm not going to say we, we were neglected and left to ourselves, but we definitely like, you know, my parents had a business to run and, and they're, they work really, really hard. And, and someone like me would, you know, maybe in hindsight, I look back and maybe I took advantage of that freedom or that trust, you know, and, and I definitely got into my fair share of, of trouble as a kid. I mean, first DUI at 16, second DUI at 17, lost my license for a year, put on probation. And that was like, you know, you would think that would be a sign to something was up and, and it was, it was, but it didn't stop and bring it into Portland that the drinking is really what kickstarted uh, the drug addiction. Cause I was looking, I was looking to quit drinking and I turned to an alternative and, and, and that's sort of how that played out. But yeah, definitely as, as youngest of three boys, we, we got into our fair share of trouble. And then I would say that, you know, alcoholism and addiction, does run in the family. Um, my dad, my dad though is not. And, and I think that's attributed to his childhood suffering, you know, growing up with an alcoholic father. And so I think in many ways he didn't want to be like that. 
and not to like get too heavy too quick, but you know, if you haven't finished the book, I talk about this in afterward, but just about the same time you found your, your brother is when I found my brother and I found my brother dead in his kitchen, uh, upon oh, doing no shit. yeah upon doing a welfare check and I, and I found it you know like his head in head in the fridge reaching for a beer and he, he basically drank himself to death he's only two years older than me and so that God, was I'm a, so sorry yeah yeah it was horrible and it's so gutting and my poor parents like the the tragedy of existence when you have like one kid kind of like claw his way back from from heroin addiction and then to to lose another son to addiction and alcoholism it's just it's they, they don't deserve it so that's been a, you know, it's much in the way. And, and that was kind of a driving force because that happened while I was writing my memoir, which is like, oh, was other, it really? Yeah. Which is like the other tragedy. Cause here I am writing a book with the intention to help other people enduring substance use disorder. And my own brother is like basically drinking himself to death. And, and, and it's just, it's really, it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow. Um, but it's hard. You, you know, I'm, I'm glad you, you know, brought that up. Like I haven't gotten there again. Like I'm about 80% of the way done, but you know, for, I'm again, terribly sorry. That's just, um, it's awful. It's, uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm glad you brought up alcoholism because I, you know, with everything going on with, you know, the, the opioid epidemic, the fentanyl epidemic, everything, you know, alcohol is still the number one killer out there, you know, year on year basis. So that's a very important thing to touch on. Just like, you know, my, my father's father, grandpa, or my grandpa, he was an alcoholic too, so definitely it ran in the genes. There was no doubt about that. Man, that's um, that's hard. You know, we mentioned that just like you know, welfare check, all that kind of stuff. It just brought me back to that night, and I'm sure just like you, that's an image you'll just never, never forget. But let's go back to you know, you mentioned high school. You said you know, 16, 17, you, you got your first Dewey, second Dewey at 17. You come to PSU and you try to quit. And what made you jump from alcohol to to heroin? So I was, I've always been a binge drinker and, you know, I, the signs were, were there, like how bad alcohol was in my life. My, the very first day at Portland State University, me and a bunch of friends, me and like new, new kids, I, I call them friends because we eventually became friends, but I just met them that day. I was drunk. We were on hanging out in front of the dorm and there was some argument and some guy got into it with some girl and I called him out and like he kicked me in the back and I flew down 10 steps and cracked my head open oh, and got Jesus. stitches I had a fake ID. The cops came and arrested me for a felonious possession. All of this sh- stuff happened like the very first day in the dorm. It was like a big trip. And that was like my introduction and, and how embarrassed, like how, how embarrassed I was. And then also like in pain and just worried about, you know, new charges in a new city. And, and that, that's sort of like, that's just an example of like some of the stuff that happened in my life. I drank for years in Portland. I was a student, I want to say eight years almost. And I was like, I I basically four or eight credits short of a degree. It's so sad. I got my minors, but I was drinking heavily and, and I moved back into the dorm. I had some relationships. Um, I'd broken up with a girlfriend. Actually, a girlfriend broke up with me because I had relapsed and started drinking again. And I was basically sick of sick of it. And someone had offered me like a, what at the time sounded like a way out. And he's like, Hey man, like, why are you doing this to yourself? Like, I see how it's, it's hurting you. I see what it's doing to you. There's a better way. And he's like, it's, it's opium. It's opium. And so it wasn't opium. It was heroin. Um, I tried it and, and, you know, to his credit, like I do believe, cause we are still friends today to his credit. I do think, you know, he was seeing, he, I think he was trying to help me basically. I, I really do. Yeah, I really do. I had um, like 
gone through alcohol withdrawal, vomited. I had tore my esophagus, collapsed the lung. I was hospitalized at OHSU. All of this stuff was happening in a very short period. And uh, he, he offered me something else. And, and I, I smoked opium, which was actually heroin. And, and I was like, cool. Like I never have to drink again. <laughs> like that, that was it. Like, thank you so much for, thank you so much for saving me from this like black hole misery of, of binge drinking for weeks on end. And, and it just went downhill quick. It went, you know, within like a very short period I was injecting within a very short period after that, I was homeless and living on the streets in Portland. I had just walked away from my dorm and I think I still owe PSU like $8,000 for like dorm fees and all this stuff. And they got my like transcripts on hold and it's just a mess. And like, that's something I want to go back and uh, correct at some point. Like that's definitely, I want to, I want to finish my degree. I want to make right. I want to go back and pay for my, you know, take accountability for what I, what I did, but that was it. And that was my introduction to heroin. It was not something I didn't find it from injury. I didn't find it because, you know, my, my parents had pills, none of that stuff. I just, I was just looking for, you know, I was looking for a way out. And, and at that time in my thinking, that was the best way out, which is obviously not responsible thinking. Yeah. And so how, how long, you know, like when you say a short amount of time, how long was it when you started smoking to injecting to being homeless? You know, how long of a time frame is that? Months, a few months. Yeah. Yeah. I smoked, I smoked for a few months. I want to be, I want to be careful because I don't want to give the, like, I don't want to give the wrong impression, but anyway, I, um, I smoked for a few months and then I made a decision for, you know, based on finances and I switched to IV use and yeah. And that, and that was, that was that. And yeah, everything changed. And I, I, I made a video recently of me scrolling through my transcripts and it's so crazy. Cause you can see like you can see the downfall really clear in like the withdrawals from classes and the D's and F's. And, you know, at, at some points I was getting straight A's and then I can almost go through my history and be like, that's when I was drinking. That's when I was sober. That's when I was drinking. That's when I started doing heroin. That's when I left. And it's, it's like the writing is on the wall. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really quick. I basically couldn't afford uh, to continue smoking. And so I went for, you know, the, the more cost effective, which is, you know, sadly, that's why a lot of people turn to to illicit black market drugs is because uh, the price of pills, you know, doesn't make sense. And you can theoretically get the same high in, high off of off of heroin. And it's just, yeah, it's just I'm uh, I'm just grateful that I ended up finding a way out. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like your book starts off immediately with, you know, you, you mentioned some of the stuff about Dewey's and things like that, but pretty quickly it comes into you know, one of your friends, um, overdosing, dying, um, in downtown Portland and you waking up and walking away from the scene, you know, because, because I, you know, see it, um, and many of us here in the community see on a daily basis. I mean, take us through living in Portland as a homeless person. What is that like? I mean, cause right now I'm looking out the window, we're supposed to have about an inch of rain today. It's 50 degrees, you know, and there's, you know, hundreds, if not, you know, thousands of people when I say thousands, you know, probably a couple thousand, of people living outside right now that don't, that don't have anything. Yeah, it was definite. You know, it was, um, I made that decision to, to basically give up on the life that I was pursuing. Like I made that decision 
to, I made the decision to walk away from dorms. I made the decision to cut off contact with my family. I made the decision to quit my job uh, at the crystal ballroom. I like, I, I basically all, all I wanted at that time, at that time was to keep using. And I had actually, you know, being homeless in Portland wasn't my first experience being homeless because I ran away and lived out of my car when I was 16 for like eight months. Right. And like, I was, so I had like done, it, it's not, it wasn't like a very foreign thing to me. I will say like Portland, the people, in, the people in Portland are amazing. And it would have been a much more miserable existence if I didn't have so many people out there that wanted the best for me. And I had a lot of constants. I had people in my life, you know, Portland had, Portland is, there's a lot of resources out there. There was a lot of places to go to get clean clothes, to get dry shoes, to get sleeping bags, to get fed. I think, I don't think Panera still exists anymore, but back then they had the Panera Cafe type thing where you could pay what you could, work off. The, the syringe exchange, Haven and all those people, those are like really positive constants in my life. And then of course I had friends because I had gone to PSU for years, but you know, I, I, I made do, I, I, I got by, I kept my needs met. The worst part wasn't being homeless. The worst part was that I was shoplifting to pay for my habit. And that anxiety, like day in and day out, because you don't get a break, that was the worst part. It was the anxiety of of thieving continuously, like merciless, mercilessly, that really was like very, very stressful. That was the hardest part. And um, and that's just what I did to to get by. I'm not justifying it, it's not right. I'm not saying that, but that's that's how I afforded my habit. And um, you know, it's just in it's in hindsight, it's like I'm very fortunate that I was able to walk away uh, relatively unscathed from that whole ordeal. And there was times where it snowed and like our street dealers weren't like, we're just like, nah, not working today. And it was like the city dried up for like a couple of days. And there, it's it's rough. It's like, it's really rough. And and I'm not saying that everyone out there is users either. I'm just talking about myself personally, right? So like, so amongst people who, you know, are homeless, you know, at your time, you know, how many are you know, ballpark, if you, you know, want to, you know, how many people have made that decision to say, Hey, I'm, this is my life right now. You know, drugs is it. And what I'm getting that is, you know, more about resources, right? How do we go upstream and try to stop that? Was it the majority of people who were on the streets who, who, you know, this is my life because I want, you know, drugs is what is ruling me right now. It's interesting you say that I'm looking at the, um, the quote in my next book, and it's a quote from Desmond Tutu that says, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. You know, I can't, I can't, I can only speak for myself. I know that I honestly made that decision. Like there was a point where I just said, I'm I'm walking away from all of this and I'm going, I'm going this direction. I don't know how many people out there had that same experience as I did where, you know, you just like shed everything and it's just like, I can move quicker this way. I got, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I do think that I did have friends who sort of fell into uh, the same boat as as I did, for sure. And there's a lot of other people that end up in there who've had it f- way worse than I had. You know, who people suffering all sorts of sorts of abuses, and and it's hard to pinpoint what exactly leads someone to to there. But I will just say for me that you know it was a it was a decision I made. And I could have corrected it at any point, which eventually I did when I, you know, by, by turning my life around and, and start doing the right thing for the right reasons. And, you know, I'm very fortunate that I got into Hooper detox. Um, it took a couple of attempts, 
But um, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, the good news is there's definitely a way out for it. Regardless of how you get there, if you want to get out, there's a way out for, for everyone. There's so many like compassionate people out there that are, who make it their like life's mission to help people either be happier and healthier where they're at or, or move into a better place if that's what they desire. So, you know, your parents really moved me because, you know, a lot of this, you know, before I get there, you know, when my, my, my brother mentioned, um, and again, he, he had a great job, all that kind of stuff, living in a condo downtown. And, and, but what he told my parents and my mom relayed to me one time was he was very afraid of becoming homeless. And like, again, this is, I didn't really at that point understand, you know, know about his addiction, all that kind of stuff. And so I'd be like, he's single. He has a good job. Why in the world would he be worried about being homeless? Right. And come to find out, you know, after he passes all that kind of stuff, I, I am now I understand um, where the drugs rule your, rule your life and, you know, the amount of money and time and investment to get all that stuff. It's, it's a lot. So now I'm kind of going back to your parents where, you know, your parents, I mean, it's a, a very remarkable story where they fly in, but it sounds like by the luck of God, you guys meet up somehow. Um, or they find you. I, I can't recall the exact story, but I mean, it was like divine intervention, you know. And I, and I just, I'm thinking of all the people out there who who do have a substance, you know, use disorder, that kind of stuff. And and there's not those parents who are, you know, having that driving force to say, hey, you know, we want you to live, we want you to go to Hooper, we've been doing the legwork behind all this stuff, you know. I mean, what, what? I guess my question would be, where do you think you would be right now with without your parents? You know, do you think you'd still be up here on the streets, or do you think? long-term that you would have found recovery? I would have died so long ago. <laughs> There's no question yeah. in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> look, look, I, first of all, like I am very aware of how fortunate I am to have parents like, like what I do. Not many people have, have two loving parents that would do that for them. So like, I am extremely grateful for the support system I have. And I just, I understand that that's not the case for most people. Um, when my parents came up to find me, I didn't, you know, I, I honestly, I didn't know, I didn't believe that there was a way out. I didn't think that there was a way to quit using. I saw what happened to friends of mine who went to detox, got clean and relapsed. I saw people die from relapsing after they got clean. I saw people die from you know, they would go to jail. And I think the stats are like, you're after 48 hours or something, your risk of OD goes up like 70%. So I, I saw a lot of people try to get out. And I, and I thought that that was a stupid, I honestly thought that that was a dangerous idea to try and get clean. Cause I'm like, I've got my tolerance where it is. I'm, I know what I, I know where I'm at. I know my dealers. I like, I, I know. So that was my thinking. Right. And I was just, you want to be alive instead of dead. Yeah. Well, I just, I didn't, I didn't think that there was a way out. And so when I, I ended up, you know, I talk about it in my book, but I, I, I ended up basically running from issues. Like I, I was running from from legal issues and I was running from other issues as well. And I didn't know what to expect. I, I made a decision to go with them and it turned out to be like a formative and one of the defining decisions of my life because that's where that's where my life I feel like began because that's that's where I eventually got clean and sober. And I tell people like this is the life like I believe I was meant to to lead. Like what I'm doing now, like this is like you're talking to the real me. Like I don't want anything from you. I'm not like trying to manipulate. You know, like I'm I am who I am, and I, and I'm like honest, like upright citizen that cares about people. And I'm so grateful that my parents were the were like the trigger to kind of get me out of that. Cause in my headspace, there was no, I wasn't planning on like 
like I had zero desire to stop using just, I didn't think it was possible. And, and, and that's such a dangerous spot to be. Um, and if you're out there and, and, you know, if someone's listening to this and you are using and you think that that's the case, that's not the case. There's a way out. If you want it, there's a lot of resources out there and there's a lot of people out there that can help you get to where you need to be. So, um, I just, I, I always call that out because it's such dangerous thinking. Cause like when there's no hope, where do you go when there's no hope? Right. Like it's, and I should mention, I should go back and, and state, you know, I, I understand, you know, it was your parents who, who did that legwork and stuff. But like you mentioned, there are lots of people who make it their life mission to help people who, who are using. And, you know, again, like, like you said, it's not the first time when, you know, you meet someone, you're going to go right into rehab, right? It might take two, three, you know, four chances, or it might take a year or two after someone plants a seed in your mind. You know, I, I remember interviewed a lady and, and um, someone plants a seed in her mind three years prior before she found recovery, but it was always that saying that just said, Hey, I think it's time. Right. And so, yeah, it just, you know, the whole story is, is, you know, remarkable. And, and, you know, when you talk about, you know, again, you know, it's more like people should just go read the story because I'm not going to do it justice. It's, it's really incredible. But I mean, just the life of, of someone, you know, living, you know, what you went through and where you are now is, is very remarkable. And, and, I want to talk about, you know, where we are now at, in the state of, you know, really kind of a, a fentanyl epidemic and also meth as well. The meth I, you know, I read was I think in 2013, 2014, um, the P2P meth when it started rolling in and it's just much more potent, more psychosis, things like that. Where do you see, you know, because I, before you start you know, talking about your new book here, harm reduction, all that stuff, how, how do you see this playing out over the next five years, this, this epidemic? And, you know, what can we do to help curtail this epidemic? Well, I would say, first of all, like, I, I know a lot. I, I study this and I, and I, I do my best to, to teach myself what I can. Um, there's far better people to speak on this topic than me. I will say that, you know, I am so grateful that I got clean and sober when I did because it's, it's an entirely different landscape to navigate from what it sounds like today than it was back you know, in 2011. And I walked away from, I left Portland in 2011. I told you before we started, I recently came up for a celebration of life for a friend and I got, I got to kind of tour the city and it's got a very different, you know, it's got, I love Portland, but it's got like a much different vibe than what I remembered. And it was interesting for me to go back after all these years and, and kind of travel and, and navigate those old haunts and to see, you know, in many ways, like where I came from and how fortunate I am that I was able to get out of that. I think it's a scary time. I think that there is, uh, you know, just the, the overdoses, uh, in 2020, it's crazy. It's crazy. Like over 93,000 and then bumped up to hundred thousand in 2021 at the end of April. I think the CC numbers were from like a 12 month period from April to April, hundred thousand people. I mean, you know, um, in this book that I, I wrote, like I had this really kind of in Bridgetown that that's, that's, that's coming out actually next week. I have, I had this, like I did a word count on my book and it was like 93,000 words. And I had just, I just read that in a, in Haven's interview, 93,000 deaths. And I'm like, every single word in this book is like someone's, you know, friend, brother, mother. And it's like, when you look at that and you like see like all of these different it's, it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around. It, it, it really is. I mean, it's, it, it's an overdose crisis uh, that is uh, un, almost unthinkable. 
And I'm so grateful that some of the people that really helped me out when I needed it were, are still around today doing doing what they have to do. Um, Haven from Outside In was a huge contributor to this book. And I know you interviewed her before, Morgan Godvin. Those those are like the people that are really connected, and and they're you know they're educating and they're and they're they're teaching. Uh, you know, at least now there's like so much more resources and information on overdose awareness. You got people like Jen Cutting, who basically has like an entire YouTube channel committed to harm reduction and how you how you can like educate yourself to be safer. I think Oregon's really interesting with the passing of Measure One Ten. I think that's a brilliant move in the right direction. I think that New York, they just opened the first two overdose prevention sites or overdose prevention centers. And, um, you know, despite like federal mandates and the, the, and they're doing it and they, they reverse like two overdoses in the first day or something. And so stuff like that, like looking at it differently is how we get, is how we get there. But a lot, a lot more stuff has to change. And the problem is like, you see what happens with like Biden's, Biden's you, you saw how like political that became when about the crack pipes and the and it was just like it's like you know like the, to change your thinking like it's gonna it needs to require an openness and uh the political I can't say this word the politicization politicization yeah. <laughs> of science is like such a detriment to the public health of our communities because you're taking topics where people their lives are on the line and people are actually dying and you're using it for political you know, like gotchas and stuff. And it's, and it's sad. It's sad. And so I think, I think the people that are looking to change the world are, you know, understandably so are, are doing it like bit by bit by bit by bit. And I think we'll, we will get there. We have to get there. We have to get there. You bring up two, two interesting points. Um, the funny, the funny part about that whole grant was when that sort of coming out um, in the news and, you know, talking about crack pipes, I'm like, I remember seeing, you know, reading about this grant, I think back in November, I'm like, so why is it, you know, three months why later, now? why, you know, why yeah. now? But two points I kind of wanted to talk to you about. So if you were, you know, let's go back 12 years ago when you were doing IV heroin and all that kind of stuff, what would a safe injection site have done for you? Do you think, you know, hypothetically, you know, if we had one in Portland then, you know, where people, and again, let's lay the you know groundwork here, where, what, what is a safe injection site where... It's a place um, uh, someone can go in, get clean material, needles, all that kind of stuff, have nurses, potentially doctors on hand, um, social workers, and you can safely use. And if there is an overdose due to tainted drug supply, there's someone on hand who can reverse the overdose with Narcan. What would that have done for you, do you think? Well, I want, I would say it would save my life, but I, I'm, I'm alive here today. I've overdosed, I've overdosed multiple times and my life was saved with the naloxone program from outside in where I had naloxone on me. I had naloxone in my safe, in my dorm, and that I've used it on people and, I, and it's been used on me. And I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm so lucky that I was a, I had it on me and I was around people that like quote unquote knew how to use it. I have, I have a story. I overdosed. Um, I was living in a house with a couple friends and there was a couple people there and I was I was like foaming and I was basically seizing and someone like just, they were just like, they were scared and, and they couldn't like get it. And someone else came in the room and, and then pulled the CC, injected it and then ran. Right. And even though, even though the, the good Samaritan law says like, you're not supposed to be picked up and, you know, for warrants and, or for possession of the event, my, my friend ran and he said that he like watched from across the street until the ambulance, like the EMTs wheeled me out and saw that I was okay. And then like left now, I'm so fortunate that that happened to me because imagine like how many other people just like me 
you know, aren't here today because they had either the stuff on them or, or someone didn't call, you know, it's, it's forward thinking here in, in the U S I've learned so much in recent years. And again, I'm not the foremost, I'm not an expert on this. I'm just, I'm someone that is passionate and wants to learn as much as I can. My understanding is like the injection centers up in Canada had like 2000 overdose reversals or something like, and no deaths, zero deaths. So that's what we're talking about. You know, I used to run around, you know, like run amok and I would, I was using in all sorts of places in the city. I was using in the public bathrooms. I was using in Starbucks, McDonald's, the library, bushes, everywhere, right? So like when you think about these sites, like what, what, what can they do? Well, they can, one, they can save lives. Two, they can bring people where they're at. And then three, let's not forget that uh, harm reduction, harm reductionists are such a huge portal and pathway to help people get into detox and move on with their life. I think in Canada, they've got the safer consumption space on the ground floor. And then above it is like the detox center. And above that is like the treatment. And so like, that's what we're talking about, right? Like, we're not just talking about one thing here. We're not just talking about, you know, coming, using, leaving. And then some people may do that. Some people may not. We're talking about keeping people connected to resources, having people that you can trust, getting actual medical information, unbiased from someone that has, you know, is just going to give it to you straight referrals, all of those sort of things. And it kind of all starts in that space. And so it's definitely something that, you know, it's kind of ironic that I wrote this whole book, Bridgetown, a harm reduction novel about like a fentanyl outbreak that's, you know, then they turn to safer consumption spaces. And then you see that literally play out in, in, you know, November, 2021 in New York. It's like, in many ways, like this fictitious story like came to life and it's i think it's like it's a tool and you know when you're talking about something like this we need all the tools we can get yeah no i I agree i mean if i go back again just a little over three years ago before my my brother passed and someone said you know talk to me about a safe consumption time i would have been like you know what the hell are you talking about i'm not gonna waste you know i don't want my taxpayer money on that but the more I keep talking to two people and, and one who, who I really enjoy talking to was Dr. Um, Nora Englander from OHSU. She runs, I can't recall the exact name of it, but she runs a, an addiction program where, you know, they bring people in, help them out. And then they also have, you know, pathways to, to recovery, like, you know, bridge, bridges to change, things like that. But the, the interesting point, and I think a lot of people don't, um, that, that isn't talked about enough, um, but she sees it every single day is the medical cost. And so when we talk about medical costs in America, that's always such a big subject, you know, over a trillion dollars in, in lost productivity uh, to the opioid, opioid epidemic that just, you know, the news came out a few weeks ago about that. But then you start relating that to the medical costs. You know, how many people are coming in HIV, hep C, you know, heart issues. Like I can't think of the exact name with, you know, you know, what happens to your heart, but all, all this stuff that's related to drug use, you know, it's a massive cost. And I think if we start talking about that as well and bringing that in, I think that would really wrap people's mind around, okay, this is a big issue. It's affecting, you know, millions of people here in America, you know, so how, again, how do we go upstream to, to, you know, help these issues so they're not, they don't land in the hospital with X disease, right? So in your book, you mentioned, you know, when you went to recovery, a very intensive recovery program, um, you know, because the most ones I've, I've heard about are the 30-day recovery programs. And here you are going to a two year (laughs) recovery program. I was kind of like, holy shit, that's intense. I mean, you know, you fly in from Portland to Hawaii detox during that time. It seems like it was like a, what, a week or two weeks by the time you landed in Hawaii and you're in this 
it's like, hey, here you are for the next two years of your life. It was like, man, that's that's like got me kind of go, oh my God, that's like really intense. But talking to so many people who've gone through recovery services and and you know, when they say, Man, it, you know, it was like uh really around you know month four to six where I really felt it right, where I felt I can make this, I can do it, and you know, my my body shifting, my mind shifting. And so you know, you mentioned, you know, during your time, you know, basically off the bat is you had hep C. And so, you know, I haven't gone through, you know, again, the, the end of the book of where you're at, all that kind of stuff. So take us through that. I mean, that, cause that again is, it's a massive scare, you know, with HIV, hep C, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I did. I, I discovered, you know, I got, I got my blood test and it was very difficult to draw blood. <laughs> like it still is. Um, I got my blood test. Is it really? Yeah, it's it's the worst. Like I I've done I've done severe damage. I did a lot of damage. I didn't I didn't even really understand like safer injection practices. I actually include that in Bridgetown because I think it's so important. Like I learned how to shoot up from someone who didn't know what they were doing, and that's just that's how it goes. And it's I didn't have the information. I mean, it was available. I just didn't. The point is, like I did a lot of damage to my body. Um, fortunately, I was able to get you know cured of Hep C. I did interfere on thing. Um, and you know, they made me sign like this contract, like I promise never to use. And, and I don't think that that like is, I have my own qualms about that. Like, I don't think that like get receiving treatment should be dependent on like me signing like a, a sobriety thing. I, you know, I, I, t- I intend to stay sober for the rest of my life, but that's a whole different issue. And, and that was just something I had to work my way through. And, um, I remember, you know, that was one of the, like the reservations that I had. And I was like, if it comes back, cause I didn't know I had, I had been tested. I actually had a false HIV test at one point. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I had a false. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was, you know, super rare, super uncommon, but like I had gone through it before. And in my mind I was sitting in treatment and it was a few months in and, and like, they just kind of call your name, like, okay, you're going here today. And I've just been waiting for this. And it was like hanging over my head. And then, um, when I got the results back, I was like, all right, like I can, you know, in my mind, I was using that. Like if it came back positive for both, I was just like, I thought like, well, and I want to be careful of my work. I just like was very, I was putting a lot on that. We, we can say that like I was, I was banking my future on the results and it doesn't have to be that way, of course. But like, that's the thinking that I had. I will say, you know, like there's, there's definitely a place in our, in, in our communities for 30 day treatment programs. I had no idea what I was walking into. I, my parents just kind of called up the closest treatment center, which happened to be like the longest treatment center, one of, one of the two long-term inpatient programs. And, and I just went there and I didn't really know what I was walking into. And, and it, it, it turned out for me in my instance, even though I had met a medical detox at Hooper for a week, I still didn't sleep for a month. It was like, I was still, I mean, cause I was, I was injecting heroin and cocaine many, many, many times a day back to back. And that was, that was like one hell of a beast to come off of. And also at that treatment center, the one that I went to, there was no uh, medication assisted treatment. It was, you basically, they say detox before you come and, and we'll give you like healthcare and medical, you know, like, but we're like, I didn't have access to like, those tools. Like I didn't, like I had Suboxone and Hooper and that was it. So it was, it was, it was hard, you know? And in, and in some ways, like um, in some ways I look at that as it was kind of a blessing because I remember that vividly and I'm never going to put myself through that again. But I also know a lot of people that walked out of that program because they just, it was too much. And so I think that 
you know, again, it just like goes to show like it's, there's a lot, there's a lot of different pathways to getting clean and, and it's not one, one size fits all. I'm very fortunate that I, I lasted as long as I did and that I'm here talking to you today. I'm very grateful for making 10 years clean. I'm not on any mat at all. I'm, I don't take anything. Um, and, and I, I think that that worked out for me. And I think that take mat works for a ton of people. And so I, I definitely want to like let people know that I'm very cognizant that abstinence is not the, yeah, it's 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 complicated. It's complicated, and so yeah. But that treatment center, Sand Island Treatment Center, is a wonderful place. Um, it's a great program, and part of me writing my book was to kind of help people like demystify what inpatient treatment is like. In fact, I just someone reached out to me just last week, and they said that they were listening to One Hit Away on the audiobook, and he's like, "I ended your book." I called a treatment program and three days later I was admitted. And he's like, because awesome. I really, yeah. And it, that's, that, that like blew my mind. I asked like, can I share this? Cause I think that's really important for people that want to write books and tell their stories. Like that's the best like feedback that any author who writing, writing in the space could get, because like if you can impact someone in some way, that's in many ways, like what my program of recovery looks like. I want people to know that there's a way out. I want people to know that there's tools out there. And that if they want it, like, you know, like anyone can get it type thing. And so that just blew my mind. And it was, it was really, really cool because inpatient, like, like you said, like it's, it's scary. Like your, your life stops. Like that's like the thought, like so many people have. And in many ways it's like, actually like your life begins. And I think that's, I think it's really, it's a really powerful tool. So. Yeah, no, it's, um, I mean, it's, uh, you know, my Kindle, I think you entered, you know, that, that, uh, facility around like 50, 50, pro- you know, 50, 55% away from the book. I'm about like at 72 right now, something like that. And it's like, I mean, it's an, it's an intense program and it, it is very interesting as you walk through it bit by bit and all the rules you have to follow and everything. So I'm really excited to get towards the end, you know, how everything plays out, et cetera. I mean, no, you're liable, all that kind of stuff, but it's, it's very fascinating. I mean, you know, I think a lot of it, we, you know, for me and, and probably others, like we want to maybe possibly read about the addiction and what you went through and all that stuff. But this book, like, I'm more fascinated around the recovery side of it and, and, you know, everyone who's, you know, like when you said like a hundred or 150 people are in this great room and, you know, t- taking in, in a class, all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, people who break rules and, you know, all that, yeah, just, you know, the whole thing, it's, it's very interesting to, to read and kind of envision in your mind as you're going through it, you know, cause again, I, I think a lot of it, maybe I relate to so much of it is cause I can see my brother, you know, I don't know if it was a two year program, but you know, an extended period where, you can really dive deep into, you know, why are you, you know, using, what is it, you know, what are, you know, any traumas you may have or grievances or whatever it may be. And I think, you know, the 12 step, you know, the 12 step program like that is so remarkable uh, laying you know, everything out. But yeah, I, you know, I think uh, why I'm probably so interested in that part of the book is I can relate if my brother got there, you know, again, where he would be today for sure. Yeah. Man, again, my heart goes, I mean, I, I hate that I can relate to, I hate that we have that like shared, you know, like that sh- shared experience. It's, it's, it's a tragedy. What you're, what you're talking about in one hit away was a very purposeful and delicate balance of trying to, to communicate a story where I didn't want to do more harm than good. I didn't want to like just drug along for a whole book and be salacious. There's tons of other books out there. Like when people think of heroin memoir, 
I don't think they think of like what one hit away is after they finish it. I wanted a book that focused on mainly like the support system, the detox, and then recovery. And I had to get people, I had to bring them in with like some aspects of what my life using was like, but I really like wanted to keep that minimal because, you know, I'm not trying to, I don't want to sell it. Like I, I could, if I wanted to, like I could, I could write, I have crazy stories that no one will ever know (laughs) that no one will ever know. And there's no reason because like, you know, the, the truth is like a lot of us, like a lot of our stories are really similar. Like when, when you think about it, like I've been, I've been clean for 10 years and I've gone to all sorts of meetings. I've talked to hundreds of people like me. And ultimately like a lot of our stories are very, very similar. We've, a lot of us put ourselves through the same thing. We get caught up in the same cycle and we're all fortunate when we make it out of it. Like that's basically like our story. And, and so it's funny, like I have like a few, like kind of like critical reviews on one hit away. And some of them are like, Hey, I wish I like knew more about his drug use. And it's like, well, too bad. Like it's a memoir of recovery. Like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, like, that's not what I'm about. Like, I'm, I'm not about, I'm not about that anymore. It's important to communicate that to show how bad it was, because I'm going to bring you to a place where it can be a wonderful, beautiful existence. But yeah, it was definitely something that like, I was mindful of. And I think, I think I did a pretty good job on it, because I, I'm definitely not, not trying to like trigger a bunch of people. And like, that would be Yeah, no, I I thought it was a very good balance. Um, It seemed like that whole process of you using and going to Hawaii was fairly quick um i think a lot of it though was just you know maybe maybe it's coming from you know living growing up in portland where you can envision the whole scenario playing out in real time because you know where everything's at when you're talking about it you know so now i'm kind of that you know i'm not from hawaii i've only been there a couple times so i'm trying to envision you and recovering hawaii all that kind of stuff so it's, it's a different dynamic but yeah I, I don't you know reading many heroin memoirs yeah they definitely go into it and i think there is a place and purpose for that for some people who like me as, you know, maybe a normie who wants to understand it. Why, why would someone go that far down? Right. You know? Um, Cause for me, I'm just trying to understand and learn about addiction and everything that goes into it and, and the harm reduction side of it and the policy side. And, you know, it, it's just, um, you know, cause again, I, like I've said before in this podcast, uh, harm reduction to me three and a half years ago would have been, you know, why are we doing this? Why, you know, why is there needles, you know, across our, you know, littered across our city, all that kind of stuff. But then, you know, you take a step back and you okay, what's the cost of that? You know, what's in terms of if we didn't have those needles, would there be a massive HIV outbreak affecting our community? You know, the human toll on it. So that's right. You know, like you, you mentioned, like you just want to educate people about that. So that's why, you know, I bring up safe consumption sites, all that kind of stuff. Cause again, I think those can definitely help some part of the littering of needles around our city. Um, you know, you're taking people in and, and disposing them correctly. But, you know, I think in Caven said, if I have to go back to your podcast, but I think they take in a million needles a year, which just blew my mind. It blew my mind. I had absolutely no idea, no clue. So, you know, just a lot of learning and, and fun stuff like that. But I want to get into Bridgetown because when this podcast come out next Tuesday, your book, I believe, will be out by then. It comes up at six. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Black Balloon Day, which is a day to honor lives lost to overdose. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. So I kind of want to get into that. I honestly, I know you sent it to me uh, in advance. I have not. I read the first two pages and I've just been busy trying to finish the other book first because uh, I do that where I start some, something else. So, you know, t- tell us what it's about, why you wrote it, because, uh, you know, it's not, it's a fiction book. So give us a, a, a little snippet. 
I'll read you the the back blurb because this is like the best. I, you know, it takes a lot of time <laughs> to think like how to communicate a story. Let me read this to you, and then we we can get into it. So, Bridgetown, a harm reduction novel. Harm reductionist Harley Hammond manages a dedicated team at the. Oh, this is an old one. <laughs> the, this is when it was still called Overpass. So, uh, Harley, uh, harm reductionist Harley Hammond manages a dedicated team at the Bridgeworks Syringe Access Program in the heart of Portland, Oregon. Known as a pillar of hope and compassion, she fights for the rights and well-being of people who use drugs. When a torrent of potent fentanyl-laced heroin rips through the city, already crippled by the failed war on drugs, overdose preventions are... Oh, man, I can't... That one's got something printed over it. I'll pull it up real quick. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm learning as we go, right? Um, when a torrent of fentanyl-laced heroin floods a city already crippled by the failed war on drugs, overdose preventions are overwhelmed, and the Bridgeworks team rushes to put life-saving supplies into the hands of those who need them most. As fatal overdoses skyrocket, stigma, blame, and fear further fuel an already volatile public health crisis. Risking her position in incarceration, Harley turns to dealers in unsanctioned risk reduction tactics in an attempt to not only meet people where they're at, but ensure no one else gets left behind. In the wake of his first book, One Hit Away, A Memoir of Recovery, Barnes dives into the pivotal role of harm reduction programs as they relate to human rights, mental health, and social justice. From safer consumption spaces to safer drug use, and following a chilling record set for fatal overdoses in the U.S., Bridgetown, a harm reduction novel is a found family journey packed with empathy and urgency to follow the science and pathways proven to work. I did okay, right? So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so um, this book exists for because Haven Willock from Outside In was massively giving with her time, energy, and efforts to help educate me, correct me, teach me, answer questions on... I wanted to write a book about a syringe exchange or syringe access program. And even during like the worst overdose crisis, like in history, she carved out time to be there for me and answer a lot of questions. I, you know, one hit away was a memoir and I wanted, I, I found a passion for writing and I found a passion for story. And I loved writing in the space that one I know about that I personal live life experience from. And I think that there's like a lot of room to grow and there's a lot of opportunities to educate people uh, and, and kind of like reduce a lot of stigma that's out there. And so I wrote this book focused on recovery. That's one in the way. And I said, you know, recovery is great because like, that's, that's definitely a part of my journey, but I would never have made it to that treatment program if I didn't have, I told you earlier, we talked about uh, the overdose preventions that was provided from the syringe exchange. And so I wanted to tell that story. I didn't know where to start. And like I said, Haven was just there every step of the way. And, and we, I came up with this idea and, you know, the sad, like the, the sad thing is a lot of my fictional ideas were things that happen all the time and things that she has to deal with on a regular basis. And people like her all throughout the country have to deal with on a regular basis. Um, but I think that it's a great opportunity to use a story to kind of communicate why a why syringe access and clean access is really important to people who use drugs, the role that they play uh, in public health. And Bridgetown is like a vessel to, you know, hopefully entertain, but also to educate. And, and also for me to continue being creative and writing in this space that is like super rewarding and like, it doesn't even, it's not like a job to me. It's like, it's, I really, really enjoy it and I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, I, I've learned a lot. I've changed a lot. I've grown as, as a person um, from the language I use, the descriptors I use to the way I self-identify. 
I, I just, I've learned so much about like the back end of things and why people do what they do. And I've always been like a taker. Like I was like someone that would come and get stuff for free and, and say, thank you, mahalo. And then like leave. And so I, I got like a really good lesson on all sorts of different things. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really, and it's also underrepresented, underrepresented in literature. I couldn't find another syringe, syringe exchange book. And by the way, you hear me say syringe exchange, but that's not the best model. One for one is not the best model of clean access, free access, giving people what they want. But the reason uh, it's an exchange is due to like contracts with the county and stuff like that. So that's something that I learned too. Like I never understood. Like, so, yeah. So you mentioned the war on drugs because I think many people who think of the war on drugs, maybe I'm just taking my personal view here. You kind of think of um, armed forces going back in the 80s, 90s, going down in Mexico, trying to you know, take down Escobar and, you know, make sure cocaine is not coming through the country now. And, and, but I think, you know, many people don't relay that to what's going on here on our grounds in America. And, you know, so w- when you say the war on drugs, what do you mean by that? The criminalization of uh, substance use disorder and often targeted specifically at, uh, at already stigma- stigmatized communities. I'm fortunate that I like walked away from what I did, not a felon, but I did plead guilty to two felonies and those are both for possession. And that alone would have probably horrifically impacted my life today. Now that I'm clean and sober, everything from housing, employment. I mean, yeah, I'm so I'm self-employed now and I worked with my family before. So, but the point is like, there's so many, there's such far and outreaching, like there's very, very horrific consequences that impact people uh, and in many times generations of, of families. And it's, you know, the way that we look at it, I mean, what it's been 50 years or so, like, is it any better? Is it any safer? We, we just had the worst overdose uh, crisis, you know, back to back two years in a row. And so it's, you, you can like listen to me if you want, you can, you know, do your own research and look at like the Port- Portugal model and other places that have decriminalized use. And they've said, you know, we can't like punish our way out of this. So let's look at like maybe changing the way that we address this because let's like, let's be maybe logical and let's, you know, look at data and, 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 and science and let's maybe put that money towards uh, funding. You know, I, I barely got into Hooper because there's such a long wait list I have a friend that just went through this too. And it's, you know, at that time it was such a, it was so many people like clawing at the door to get in and they can only, they only have so many beds and you got like how many people were there back then because they were court ordered by a judge with maybe no intention of getting clean because that's not what they wanted for themselves. And so you like clog up the system, you clog up the opportunities for people that really do want to get clean and change your life. And there's like competition now because of trying to penalize and criminalize substance use disorder. And it's, it's much more complicated than that. Again, there's like a lot more people that know a lot more about this than I do. I just know that in my life, it didn't help me. Uh, and I'm fortunate that I walked away relatively unscathed, but I've got a lot of friends who, who haven't. And it's, it's made their life very, very difficult and it holds them back. And in many cases, it's like something that they have to carry with them forever. Like it, it follows them forever. And that's not, you know, that's not compassionate. That's not, uh, per- like it, it's just, it's, it's something's got to change. And then I just like point to other places that are able and willing to, to make those changes. And like the data's in and you, 
you know, like you just hope the best for the people in our country. Mick, I know like the, the number just, it's been really hard on a lot of people and a lot of people have gone back to using, there's been a, uh, like Sand Island treatment center, my treatment program, even though it's a closed group as graduates, if you're in good standing, you can go back and, you know, it was shut off to, to graduates for a long, long time, like eight, 10 months, couldn't go back for meetings and we had, but it's okay. Like we pivot. That's what we do. Like we, you know, like when one door closes, like then the online meetings and stuff popped up. And so, you know, we're really good at pivoting and thinking on our feet. And so there's ways to get it, but yeah, that we're, we're talking about, like, we're still in the midst of, you know, COVID and it's, it's been very difficult on, on a lot of people. And then especially people either in recovery or on their way to recovery or actively using, it's just been, it's changed a lot and it's complicated. Like even like disrupting the drug supplies, uh, that alone has been like very difficult and deadly. Yeah. You know, that's, I would love to, yeah, just of course I'm just now getting to this, uh, free flowing here where I would love to interview someone on, I don't know if it's like the DEA side or, or border patrol side, right. Where you're having a flood of, you know, fentanyl coming across the border, right. You know, what, what is the solution? Because again, the majority of these overdose deaths are caused by fentanyl. And yes, people do actively seek fentanyl and stuff, but there's a lot of people who have never even touched drugs and they go out, you know, like you're hearing the worst stories on Snapchat where, you know, a high school kid, you know, types in something and, and boom, the drug dealer's right there and within minutes and hands them a, what they think is a Percocet or Xanax or whatever it may be. And yeah, dead. you had that, just, you had that guest on that was just like her son, right? Like her son. Yeah. Uh, 18 years old or yeah, 17. With, with no like no, no um known like it and it just like blew the the whole like the family like blew, shocked them and then the community too yeah it's scary stuff i'm so grateful personally that i'm i got clean when i did um but you know i have kids and i've got you know friends and, and i've got a lot of people i care about that are dealing with this stuff day in and day out and it's just it's hard it's rough and it's I don't know the solution. I, I wish I did. I know like I can be part of the solution though. So like part of that is like educating the public. I mean, Bridgetown, look, I'll let you in on a secret. Like Bridgetown is a means to educate people. Basically. I wanted to teach people about overdose awareness, overdose prevention, safer consumption sites. And I figured like the best way to do that is to bring them in with the story. And then once they're vested, I can like needle away at like some of these issues, like safer drug use and stuff. And so it's like my attempt to just like kind of contribute to the, the conversation the best I can from where I sit. And I think that that's like a start, but it, it, it's, it takes a lot of like, it's just, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like when I, when I showed up to inpatient treatment in 2011, I didn't think I could get clean. Like I didn't think there was a solution to my, my issues, but I was, I soon found myself surrounded by a group of people that were all working towards a common goal. And eventually like I changed my position and my thinking and that therefore changed the future of my life. And so it's much the same way. Like how do we change like the thinking? Like how do we change? How do we get people to stop making it you know, why does it have to be so political? Why does it have to be such a debate? Why can't we just like look at numbers and talk like, you know, rational human beings and look at what works and what doesn't work, look at places where it works and and do that. And, you know, like Mayor Bill de Blasio did that with the overdose prevention centers. He's like, after exhaustive, this is a quote, okay. After exhaustive study, we know the right path forward to protect the most vulnerable people in our city, and we will not hesitate to take it. 
Overdose prevention centers are a safe and effective way to address the opioid crisis. I'm proud to show cities in this country that after decades of failure, a smarter approach is possible. And so it's stuff like that. It takes like, and you know, what's, what I think is great is that by, you know, I think a lot of these, a lot of people are waiting to see what happens with a lot of stuff. And I think by, by New York, by New York doing that, you're going to, you're going to, it's going to have this cascading effect and other places will open. And at the same time, unfortunately, it's all, it's not all like, you know, roses out there because there's other people fighting to keep their, I think like Western uh, Virginia, like shut down their syringe exchange during the middle of an HIV outbreak. And the CDC like calls clean syringe access, like one of the pillars of HIV prevention, and they still shut it down. And so stuff like that has happened, you know, like has happened all throughout and even Canada, like there's a lot of back and forth and back and forth. And it's got to be frustrating to be so actively involved in that and to be fighting like it wears on you. But there's people out there that, you know, they, they won't give up because they, they just they know that, you know, they can be part of the solution. So it's definitely going to require like, you know, a shift in a shift in thinking. Um, and we're seeing that we're seeing it like pop up around the country. No, for sure. I, you know, I, I mean, God, by now it's, um, you know, this epidemic's been going on since 90, 98. I don't know. I mean, and then you tack on, you know, alcohol, you know, what family hasn't been affected by addiction, whether someone in recovery or someone dying, I mean, or both, or, I mean, it's got to change. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what it is that what's taking so long. I can only guess the, the, the stigma behind it of, you know, decades of stigma, just like marijuana and how that. You, know, you mean the, de- you mean the devil's the weed, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was back in the 30s. So um, it's just wild. So, I, you, know, I, you know, like I know Portland, or not Portland, but Oregon, you know, passed the uh, same with, you know, it was, I think, Measure 109 or 108. I can't recall. It was the same year 110 passed last year. And it's to do with uh, psychedelics in terms of a therapy. And you look at the data they had, and it was like the success rate from people who, who had PTSD and, and what psychedelics did in a controlled setting it vastly improved their PTSD by like 80% or something. It was something, it was re- a remarkable number. And I was just like, holy shit, you know, cause for me, I was kind of thinking about that. I was like, wow. Cause you know, a lot of the times, um, you know, for me is, is getting flashbacks of finding my brother. Right. You know, and, and just, you kind of pause and you get those chills and you know, you're, you're just kind of stuck for you know a minute, you know, w- what, I don't know what psychedelics could do, but could that, could that alter, could it alter my, my perception of, of that event, you know, right. Could, could it help? And so I, I just think of that and I think of people who've been through, you know, abuse and, and massive trauma and, you know, everything, you know, there's just a different way instead of just constant pill popping. Now, I mean, I can't say that cause I, I take a lot for my, for my anxiety, but it does help. And I'm not bashing pharmaceutical here, but there has to be alternatives to, you know, it's a lot of this stuff is natural. I mean, marijuana is natural. It's just, I, the stigma behind it. So <laughs> yeah, definitely what, sidetracked there. what I'm hearing you say is like, we need all the tools, right? And like, we shouldn't close doors on possible solutions either. And and so, yeah, like microdosing has this, all of these things have their place and uh, being able to talk about it and being able to like educate ourselves about it is this, that's where it starts. That's where it starts. I am like playing catch up and trying to educate myself on all sorts of things. And, and that's part of my job now is like, if I'm going to write about this stuff, I need to be as educated as possible and I'm, and I'm doing my best and it's, I'm, I'm getting there and I'm making progress. I find a lot of inspiration though, uh, staying like tied in and connected with people that are on the forefront of this stuff, because it's, 
especially now like that I've, I'm coming back kind of to this world after like years of being clean and away from it. Like it's, it's so inspiring to see like the work that goes on and, and how difficult it is. I mean, like you're you, like constant battles for funding and you've got like misinformation and you've got all these like things that constantly get thrown. Like there's just, and there's people that don't want to learn and, and don't want to change and will never change. And, and that's okay too. You know, like you can't, you can't control other people. You can, you know, just do your best and, you know, give, hopefully give people information and, and it's also unfortunate. The tragedy is that people that get brought into this after being dragged in through, you know, like tragic circumstances, like death of a loved one um, and, and like wanting to know more and like wanting to learn more and like, how is this possible and where can I help? And a lot of those people are making a big difference too. And um, yeah, it's, I'm just, I'm trying to do what I can to, to raise awareness and just, you know, keep the conversation going. So there's two more questions before I let you go. Um, one you know, it's, it, and it's, if it's okay to ask, um, you know, in terms of recovery, you've been sober now for 10 years or clean now for 10 years, whatever the you know, word people use now, do you still think about using, do you still get triggered by things, you know, 10 years later? No, not really. No. And you know, like, um, I'm in recovery and I work a program of recovery and, um, it's an abstinence-based program and I'm tied into program. Like I've got my mentor, I've got close friends, I was kind of running on autopilot for a long time, like just doing the work and staying plugged in. And, and, and that was that. And I, when I switched to writing my story, it was really interesting because it kind of like forces, forced me to go back and like uncover a lot of things that I had kind of buried. I went back and I, I pulled out my journals from, you know, Sand Island, Island required us to journal every single day. And so when people are like, how do you remember all this stuff? It's like, I, I've got like, like 20 or 30 yellow notepads, like filled through the margins of like writings of what I was experiencing. Um, but writing about this stuff forces me to think more about it. And if anything, I just have that much more gratitude for where I am today. And um, I want to help people get there if that's what they want. Uh, I want people to know that like there's a way out, but I, I don't like, honestly, like my wife drinks really responsibly, <laughs> like, and she's pregnant. Yeah, yeah, so she, yeah. doesn't, so she's, she doesn't drink. She hasn't had to drink for like, yeah. <laughs> six months but like you know we have like friends over and you know the thing is like my issues are my issues they're not like everyone else's issues and that's it and i'm just so fortunate to have like crafted a life where i love where i'm at today and it's it really is like the sense of freedom like i'm so grateful i don't have drug dreams i'm so grateful i don't have to fight against impulses or triggers even going back to portland like i told you i i walked through the city and i like I went to all the spots in my book and like shared them on my Instagram page. And it was like, there's nothing triggering. I was just like grateful that I, you know, made it out and, and, and how fortunate I am. If anything, I was just, it's just gratitude, but I'm very free and that's my experience. And it's not the same for everyone. Um, I've got friends who struggle like a lot and, and that's, that's okay. Like that's, there's, of course it's okay. Like it's okay to be however you are <laughs> in your life, but like, it's, you know, I'm just, grateful that i don't have that that like constant tug and pull because 10 years of of feeling that way would be trying you know it'd be tough yeah and a lot of that i attribute to the work i did in early recovery at the treatment center which was like a boot camp in uh recovery for a long time it was very very in your face so yeah it sounds it definitely seems like it reading about it and so the last question i have is um, I, you know, I ask people who, who, who are in recovery, what has recovery given you? 
well, besides the obvious, like a life to live, right? <laughs> like it's given me the ability to be the person that I, I want to be. And it's, and by that, like I am, a, I can literally do anything I want to do. Like I, I often tell people recovery is much like a superpower. Like, look, I wrote a book and I didn't know the first thing about writing a book, but I've got drive and motivation and clear thinking and time. And I was able to, you know, write my memoir won best book of the year. And it was my first book. It's like that sort of stuff happens in recovery. Like you can do anything you put your mind to. And especially if you're like, if you got a little bit of motivation, like, cause like I'm kind of lazy, but I work hard if that makes sense. But like, I, it's given me that it's given me back. Um, you know, I've got my family, I've got a wife, I own my home. I've got a kid, I've got a beautiful son and this kid on the way, uh, connections. I've got purpose. Now I'm in a position to help others, which is like, the, it's the coolest thing ever. Like that's kind of like full circle of what I think it's about. And so it's just, it's given me, uh, you know, it's given me a life to live and it's, it's a beautiful thing. And, and I, I'm very, very, very fortunate to have the support system to help that help get me here and that I, I still use to this day. And so if I can be that support system for, you know, someone else, like I'll drop anything I can to do it because I, I know that how valuable those people were in my life. And so, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, you know, again, I, I, I'm, I'm so happy. I, I found your book just a week and a half ago, you know, while my, my three and a half year old is just laying next to me sleeping and, <laughs> you know, had to fill up time. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a really remarkable story. I mean, it's, it's one of the most raw stories I, I've read and it's very detailed. And, and again, you touch on so many parts of the recovery aspect, which I think is very, very important. And so, you know, please, again, plug, you know, plug both books because um, you do have one coming out, which I'm very excited to read. So, so again, my name is Jordan Barnes, uh, www.jordanpbarnes.com. That's P as in Prescott. Uh, my first book is called One Hit Away, A Memoir of Recovery. And it's my story of an arduous and unlikely recovery from homelessness, houselessness, and heroin addiction. That's mainly, though, a story about other people and how they supported me and got me to where I'm at. My next book... My second book, my first novel is Bridgetown, a harm reduction novel. I'll spare you the blurb because I already read that to you. But that this to me is, uh, I think it's it's a really important read uh, for people that want to know more and even for people that don't want to know more and to learn about different ways of thinking when it comes to tackling substance use disorder and public health as it affects our community. All social media is at Jordan underscore P underscore Barnes. Again, you got my website. Books are available on audiobook. Bridgetown will be on an audiobook as well. So you can get that on Audible or Amazon. And uh, yeah, reach out. If anyone out there is listening, feel free to reach out to me. Um, and yeah, I'd love to love to uh, stay connected and do my part. Awesome. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for your time today. It's it's remarkable. Yeah, I'm, I'm again, so glad I, I, I found you through uh, you know, your book and uh, willing to come on and, and talk and sh- you know share your story and also what you're doing uh, these days. So again, thank you so much. Of course, you got it. Have a wonderful day. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to the Henry Zunkel podcast. Please like, subscribe, and leave us a review. If you would like to learn more about our nonprofit, please go to henryzunkel.org. As we say here at Henry Zunkel, you are loved, never judged.